today on Pens Exchange, how ideas born, the social aspects behind innovation. Welcome to Pens Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today we will be joined by Michael Andrews. He's an assistant professor in the economics department at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Mike received his PhD in economics from the University of Iowa. He also was a postdoctoral fellow in innovation policy at the National Bureau of Economic Research and in the economics department at Northwestern University. His research interests include the economics of innovation and general U.S. economic history. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Fernando. It's great to be here. Appreciate the invitation. Innovation is heralded as an essential trait of success in modern firms and societies alike. Entrepreneurs are hailed as our modern-day heroes, persons with creativity and heightened perceptiveness committed to finding better and more efficient ways of creating value. But what are the social conditions necessary to foster people like that? What are the broader institutional underpinnings that facilitate innovation? Today, Michael will talk to us about the importance of ideas, their transmission, and the forums that allow people to communicate with each other. Mike, let's start by discussing the basic definition of innovation. What is it? What do we mean by it? And why the definition matters? Sure. Well, uh, I, I take a very broad view of what innovation is. To me, an innovation is anything that is new, so it hasn't been done before. And it's useful in, in some way, in some form to some person. So anything new and useful, uh, I would consider an innovation. Why does it matter? Uh, to me, innovation is really the core story behind economics, right? Everything explaining the economic growth, radical economic growth, radical improvements in our quality of life we've seen uh, over the last 200 to 250 years really is being driven by innovation, right? Uh, our advancement from a world where life was nasty, brutish, and short to today where we can live uh, reasonably healthy, wealthy, and wise, uh, really that's been driven by understanding how to use the resources that the universe has provided us in new ways uh, and ways that are, are beneficial to us. So that is innovation. Uh, now, while innovation is super important for explaining the story of, of economic growth and economic development, I don't think we have a great sense of where it comes from, uh, why some people and places, groups, regions are more innovative than others. So that's where I, I sort of see myself as coming in and, and trying to answer with my research, is trying to understand those questions. Yeah, in fact, a large part of your research deals with specifically the social aspects behind innovation on how new ideas are fostered by people gathering in bars, coffee shops, and parties. And I would like to ask you how much of innovation is in fact due to social networks and how much is a result of personal attributes of individual entrepreneurs? Yeah, that, that's a hard question uh, to answer. I, my personal opinion is uh, where we are as like a research community, I don't think we're, we're quite there yet to be able to answer that question effectively. So I think we're at a point where what we can say, uh, including through, through work such as my own, is that social interactions matter for innovation. So I can say the effect of those is not zero. Uh, we think 
you know, exposure to ideas matters at different points in the life cycle. We think probably human capital matters. There's probably something innate which plays a role. Um, the studies to answer these things tend to look at sort of specific settings. So I think we need to be careful uh, comparing results across very different settings or, or institutional details. Um, so it's it's hard to say sort of how much do social interactions matter relative to human capital, relative to uh you know, institutions and things like that. I, I hope, I think one of the end goals for us as researchers should be to say, let's say you're a policymaker and you have one extra dollar to spend to promote innovation. Would we be better off putting that towards, you know, infrastructure to improve social interactions or towards human capital? Uh, and if we put it towards improving social interactions, would we be better off, you know, investing in say high-speed internet so we can do more virtual communications more easily, or would we be better off investing in, you know, bars and restaurants that we can get more face-to-face -face interactions? Uh, if we think human capital matters, do we want to put that extra dollar towards pre-K or early primary education to build the basics, or do we want to invest in higher education, and do we want to push people towards research careers or uh, focus on vocational skills? I, I think there's all sorts of these questions about where we can get the most bang for our buck to promote innovation that I think a lot of us are working on, but we just don't quite know yet. And, and hopefully we'll get there. And when we try to explain differences of innovation across societies, would you think social networking matters? I mean, when you think about the US compared say Latin America or in other parts of the world, would you think that the social setting is a key aspect of that difference? Yes, I, I, I have little doubt that social networks and social interactions uh, matter. And, and personally, I believe they matter a great deal. In fact, the, the study I think we'll talk about today um, shows that when you take away some of these uh, opportunities to have social interactions, at least in the short term, innovation can drop a lot. Um, I, I, I do think it's difficult sort of comparing across regions, you know, is social interactions, is that the first order effect or are there other institutional features that we'd like to get in place first? Uh, that I think is is harder to answer. So I, I think we're maybe less confident making drawing big conclusions about that. Okay, let's focus then on the social aspects. What specific mechanisms do you have in mind when you talk about the importance of social networks? Is it just knowledge spillovers? Yeah, I think I think knowledge spillovers is a big part of it. And, and we should probably clarify, I guess, what exactly we're talking about when we use this term, knowledge spillover, right? So I think the basic idea is um, I have ideas in my head. And when we get together and we talk, just over the normal course of a conversation, these ideas, some of them go from inside my brain, uh, out of my mouth, you know, into the air, into your ear, and hopefully in, into your brain. Uh, and, you know, it's very hard for, and these, these ideas may be useful or valuable to you in some way. It's very hard for me to actually charge you for those, right? Or to receive any sort of compensation for these ideas. So that, that's the sense in which the knowledge uh, spills over in an economic sense. Uh, you benefit without uh, me receiving compensation. Um, now, of course, the question is, why does, first of all, why does that matter for innovation? And then why do we think social interactions are so important for facilitating these knowledge spillovers? Um, I think the story I just told, right, that, that it's natural to see how that might uh, be beneficial for the diffusion of innovations, right? I tell you about something new and it sort of spreads around by word of mouth. We also tend to think new ideas come from novel recombinations of existing ideas. Uh, Marty Weitzman is probably most famously associated with uh, at least formalizing that idea. So 
Uh, if we can get more of these knowledge spillovers, more of these ideas to bounce around from one head to another, um, we're going to get more of these recombinations, and hence we're going to see more successful innovations. Now, what I think is so interesting about studying different social settings is we can start to think, um, where are we likely to see more of these recombinations take place? So I, I tend to think about contrasting like uh, uh, a, a lecture or a seminar or like a structured meeting with the kinds of conversations that take place at like a bar or a restaurant or a coffee shop. So if you if you think about the the bar or the restaurant compared to the the seminar or the lecture, um, the conversation is much less structured, right? There's no set agenda. Um, there's no one taking role other than maybe a bouncer. There's really no, no gatekeeper. Uh, you can sort of bounce from conversation to conversation to conversation. Uh, so for all these reasons, I think we, we might expect these sort of what I would call informal social settings, the bars, restaurants, coffee shops, to generate a lot of these recombinations. Um, there's also, I mean, there's some other reasons we might think uh, settings like bars and restaurants might be especially conducive to creating new ideas. Uh, we could think about ideas like what uh, social network researchers would probably call triadic closure, right? So, uh, Fernando, you and I know each other, but maybe I have uh, another friend who I think you would get really get along really well with, uh, and you guys might be able to learn from each other. It might be useful for us to just get together and meet informally in someplace that's like a focal location or a hub, someplace like a bar or restaurant, overcome some of these coordination issues. Uh, so that's, I think, another benefit of social settings like bars, restaurants, coffee shops. You specifically study how alcohol prohibition in the 20s in the U.S. indirectly led to a decrease in the rate of patent feelings by the closure of saloons and bars. Could you elaborate a bit on the setting and why that setting is relevant for studying the behavior that you're explaining today? Sure. Yeah. So I, I just spent, you know, a long-winded explanation of why we think these face-to-face uh, -face interactions in settings like bars or restaurants matter. But it turns out it's really hard to quantify just how important they are. Getting back to what we said at the beginning, like we, we think these things matter, but how much do they matter is sort of a, a tough nut to crack. So what made alcohol prohibition so exciting to me as a researcher is this is one of the few cases where we actually have radical dramatic changes to the ways in which people are allowed to interact informally. Uh, again, in a research setting, that's very hard to come by. So, so to me, this was a, a very exciting setting to study. Uh, I should also mention, you know, historically, before prohibition, the saloon was even more important as a social hub and a, a center of social life than the bar is today. You had a non-trivial share of the population spending a non-trivial fraction of their non-working hours at the bar, right? So when you come in with prohibition and you shut down the saloon, uh, you're dramatically changing the ways and places in which these people are sort of being exposed to ideas. Um, so I, I, should, I should clarify, I guess, a little bit about the setting that I study. Uh, I think probably most of us are familiar with federal alcohol prohibition in the U.S., which goes into effect in 1920. Uh, in this paper specifically, I actually look at the passage of state prohibition laws, which go into effect. Uh, typically, uh, there's a, a few waves of them, but uh, most go into effect in the couple of decades before the passage of federal prohibition. And what's nice about state laws is, of course, we have geographic and temporal variation in terms of where this prohibition actually occurs. 
Um, the other nice thing is prior to state laws, counties could choose for themselves whether to be wet and allow alcohol or, or be dry and not allow the saloon. Uh, so when these state laws go into effect, counties are going to be differentially treated on the basis of their pre-existing local alcohol law. So we can compare the formerly wet counties to the dry counties before and after the state law and see what happens to innovative activity or inventive activity. And how do you measure that innovative activity? I see that basically you look into patent filling rates. That's right. Uh, yeah, and in this paper, we'll look at changes in patenting activity. Um, patents are, are a widely used proxy for innovation. Um, and I say proxy, we know there's a lot of innovative activity patents don't capture, um, but there's a lot they do capture. And it's very hard to think of uh, sort of systematic measures of innovation that cover wide geographic areas over an extended period of time, uh, cover many different types of technologies, are fairly democra uh, democratic and, and open to all and reasonably cheap to acquire. Um, and for which we can link a particular individual person and location to a particular idea. So patents check all those boxes. So for those reasons, um, a lot of researchers have, have relied on the patent data to act as a rough proxy for, uh, for changes in invention and changes in innovation. Um, so that's what I do. And how would you differentiate between invention and innovation? Yeah, that's a that's a <laughs> the difference between invention and innovation. I, I think is probably one of these questions that, if you asked uh, ten researchers in the area, you'd probably get at least ten different answers. Um, I, I I think to me, so I, I as we said at the beginning, I have a very sort of broad, big view of what innovation is. Uh, it's anything that's novel and useful. I guess you could think of invention as a a subset of that. Uh, invention is you know, something created by humans that's novel and, and useful, um, maybe differentiate invention from like a discovery, which is not something created by humans, but would still be something that's new to us and potentially useful. Uh, of course, in, in the context of patent data, right, if you're talking to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, uh, they have a very specific legal definition of what an invention is, right? It, it's something that's useful, novel, Crucially, it must be non-obvious, uh, and it has to be patentable subject matter. So I, I think, to me, I, I don't like to get too bogged down in worrying about these distinctions between innovation and invention. I, I think as uh, researchers, we can argue a lot about semantics and you know spend so much time thinking about these fine distinctions between really closely related concepts uh, that we might miss the big picture, right? And the big picture, of course, is trying to understand how do we get more new and useful ideas out there. Um, but I, I do think it's important in this context, right? We're, we're sort of limited in what we can study in part by the data that we have access to. So we should, I think, be aware that what we're seeing is patenting, which is part of innovation, but it's not everything. So I think uh, keeping those caveats in the back of our mind when we, as researchers, think about conducting these studies and as readers, when we think about uh, looking at these results, I, I think is is valuable. I guess one of the most relevant critiques against the use of patents would be like to say that really patents reflect not the innovation of an era of a place or for someone, but really just the rent-seeking institutions that are embedded within that social. What would you say about that? Yeah, well, again, we, we know... We know there's a lot of innovation that doesn't get patented, as we said, and then we know there's a lot of patents that are um, not valuable 
at all, either worth nothing or in the context of rent seeking, as you just said, maybe worth a, a negative value. Um, we've, you know, people who work with patent data have come up with a, a, a number of clever ways to try and think about uh, how to take take these issues into account. So, uh, for instance, uh, patents like academic papers uh, have to cite prior work that they build on. So one common thing that you'll see is um, weighting patent counts by a number of citations to try and take into account this quality issue. Um, more broadly, I mean, I, I think it's certainly true that there are some bad patents out there, some patents that are value destroyed or reflecting rent seeking rather than capturing innovation. My impression based on reading and looking at a lot of patents is that on average, um, particularly if we're, we're looking within a, a window of time where the patent law doesn't change very much, uh, they're doing a pretty good job of reflecting creation of, of new useful inventions during a, a given period. So I, I think it's a reasonable proxy to use again, with these caveats in mind. Returning to your study, did you find that the closure of the saloons led to a permanent decrease in patent filling rates, or was it just a level effect that rebounded after alcohol prohibition ended? So this is one of the uh, great things about looking at prohibition as a sort of a, an event that affects innovation is uh, in contrast to, to some of the other treatments that people have tried to look at in the literature, prohibition lasts for a while. So we can think about tracing out the effects of this disruption of informal social networks over some period of time. Uh, I think you, you had on as a guest uh, a, a while ago, Marcus Brunemeyer, thinking about resilience, right? And uh, it's, it's a fascinating concept, but you know, if, if we have very short lasting shocks, it's sometimes hard to think about you know, empirically uh, you know, we can, we're, we're happy enough as empirical researchers if we can identify what happens right away. Thinking about how people actually respond and rebuild over time is, you know, much harder. So I was excited that this is something I can actually think about. Um, and what I see, uh, as, as you've already alluded to, is after these state prohibition laws go into effect, uh, there's a sizable drop in patenting in uh, places that uh, were wet before prohibition, right? So places that really have prohibition imposed on them by the state. This drop is going to be biggest in the years immediately after the law goes into effect. And then it's going to, as again, as you alluded to, rebound over time. So by the time we get to about five or six years after the prohibition law starts, I can't even rule out that invention is back to its uh, prior trend. And and this, I should I should clarify, these prohibition laws tend to be on the books for decades, right? So we're actually, we've recovered long before the prohibition laws go away, right? Long before prohibition ends. And to me, that, that makes complete sense. I think that's what we should expect to see if the, the you know, theory that we have in the back of our head is we have people with uh, having these informal face-to-face -face interactions at the local bar, local saloon, prohibition comes in, it really disrupts these informal social networks, right? People lose a lot of their informal uh, contacts where they got a lot of their, you know, ideas and knowledge and, and just exposure to, to other people. But over time, they find other ways and other places to connect and rebuild these social networks, right? So instead of meeting at the local saloon, you can, you know, meet at the 
barber shop or the bowling alley, or you figure out where the speakeasies are over time. Um, but it takes a while. So we see this drop and then a slower recovery. Looking into the present and trying to find kind of an implication of your study for the present, well, of course, COVID-19 also led to a closure of many of these social gathering places. And speaking about the resilience of social networks, of course, life did not end with COVID-19. We found alternatives. But there are differences, of course. Would you say online interactions can replace these face-to-face interactions? Are there perfect complements at best? Or is there something unique and special about really talking with you in person and in a coffee or in a bar or in an informal gathering place where we can actually maybe touch between each other? So this is not something I have any hard data on. So I, I would have to speculate. Um, and I, I should also uh, confess, you're talking to somebody who's a big fan of in-person happy hours, but I've, I've never been able to quite enjoy the uh, virtual happy hour uh, during during Zoom. So to me, I think we've lost uh, quite a bit with everything going virtual. I, I think the, the virtual interactions is a substitute for face-to-face interactions, but a fairly poor substitute. Uh, and, you know, why that's the case, I think there's, there's an element of uh, spontaneity that you get face-to-face that has proven to be really difficult to replicate online. Um, you know, it's also the case that uh, having a virtual, you know, happy hour or inter- social interaction of any kind with more than, you know, three or four or five people, it becomes really difficult to manage people talk over each other. You don't get sort of, if you're, you're face to face with a intermediate size group, you sort of break off into um, side conversations and it's easy to bounce from conversation to conversation. And the groups that are uh, having these different conversations sort of molds and evolves over time, all those sort of dynamics, I think are really difficult to capture uh, virtually. Uh, in, in spite of our best efforts. I mean, certainly communicating virtually, we, we've gotten a lot better at it over the last two years than we were in you know, 2019. But I, to me, I think there's still a long way to go. And I, I think we do lose something if we can't have that in-person, face-to-face uh, interaction. In his famous book, Bowling Alone, Putnam famously argued that social gatherings were less common today than they used to be. He was, of course, primarily interested in assessing its impact on the decreases in the levels of political participation and civic engagement. Would you agree that social events and gatherings are less common today than they used to be? I mean, even without COVID? And would that also imply a counterfactual that our rate of innovations are lesser than they could be? So this, this is another case where I don't, uh, I, I haven't looked at a lot of the more recent data on interactions uh, myself in depth. So a lot of my understanding of this phenomenon comes from, for instance, Putnam uh, and others. But, you know, based on my read of, of their data, it, it, I find it fairly convincing that there's less civic participation, maybe uh, less of those kinds of interactions than we would have had in the past. Uh, and, and I do think uh, to the extent those interactions are declining, uh, that should, you know, show up in the rate and, and direction of innovative activity. Um, wh- where it gets a little bit trickier is, you know, it's, it's. Uh, I, I spoke at the beginning, I, I think we're at a stage as a research field where we're convinced social interactions matter. Uh, we're trying to understand what kinds of social interactions matter and why and in what ways, right? So, um, we have fewer people engaged in, uh, you know, civic groups and things like that. 
those may be cases where you have fairly um, what Mark, uh, sociologist Mark Granovetter would call weak ties, right? So I'm maybe exposed to very diverse ideas because these are people I don't see all the time. I just see them, you know, once a week or once a month at the Rotary Club or whatever. Um, so I, I may lose those ties, but I may be using that time to, you know, engage in, in more interact, uh, more intimate interactions with people I'm close to, right? So you know, I think we're not quite sure yet. Uh, when does a strong tie substitute for a weak tie? You know, what type of knowledge flow there is going to be more useful for uh, invention uh, or, or innovation or creativity more broadly? Um, I don't think we have a great answer. I, I guess I, I'd say also the other literature I think this relates to is, you know, as these face-to-face -face interactions have, uh, th those kinds of weak tie civic interactions have declined, uh, people do spend a lot more time communicating virtually. And, you know, I think we, we have all these questions about how people are using the internet more broadly to communicate, but, you know, more specifically like internet news or social media uh, to receive and, and share knowledge. So like to the extent that those interactions are, or those sources of information are an echo chamber versus the extent to which people are using those new technology tools to be exposed to a more diverse set of ideas. I think that's also going to be really important for thinking about innovation today relative to the past. To finish, to finish our talk, a paradoxical situation has arisen where we are led to believe that we live in this golden age of innovation with relatively fast access to goods and contacts across the world, which literally are at our fingertips. Yet, most of the measurements suggest a slowdown in the productivity growth rates. This is, of course, something that has really little to do with your research, but I'm really interested to hear about what you have to say about this. Do you think our measurements are wrong? Or is something else that we are missing? And this goes into the, the idea that innovation is really hard not only to measure, but really to define itself, right? Yeah, I, I think these are, of course, really important questions for you know thinking about the future of the improvement of our, our quality of life. Uh, my understanding, my reading of the literature is uh, two things. I mean, certainly, as, as you've said, um, Measured productivity has declined uh, dramatically, maybe as much as a percentage point uh, per year since about the mid 1970s. Which you know, when when you have growth rates of only two to two and a half to three percent per year, one percentage point decline is huge. Um, I think there's also no doubt that measured productivity is measured productivity growth. I should say is understating the amount of actual productivity growth. That we've had, right? There's there's no question that a lot of the benefits we've derived from, you know, information and communication technologies, so the internet and things like that, uh, a lot of those things have benefited our lives in ways that don't show up in measured economic growth. So that's uh, to that extent, there's no question that we've had more growth than we observed. Now the issue is, in the past, historically we've also had far more growth than we've observed, right? Things like indoor plumbing or all the improvements in, in health and education and, and different institutions. Uh, all these things have improved our quality of life in ways that don't show up in traditional GDP. So if you wanted to compare productivity growth rates since the 1970s to productivity growth rates throughout uh, the 20th century, you should also realize that those earlier growth rates are also going to be understated. 
So my understanding for people who've looked at this fairly carefully is uh, growth is probably more than more than we measure, but it's still slower today than uh, in in prior decades. And and I think that conclusion is is fairly well established. Um, you alluded to this paradox, right? So saying that uh, productivity growth rates are so low today, it sounds weird if you look at like what's going on in Silicon Valley, or you talk to people in uh, uh, the medical field in Boston, or or you look at the Research Triangle Park in in North Carolina. Um, we we get to this case where you, it really does seem like it's the best of times and worst of times, right? In in terms of innovation and productivity growth, and I, I think the the resolution to this paradox is there are some sectors of the economy that are innovating very rapidly and devoting a lot of resources to innovation and uh, celebrating the innovation that occurs, celebrating and publicizing it. So IT is the obvious example. Um, We see a lot of innovation in parts of the health sector, right? So new drugs, um, somewhat in medical devices. But then there are other parts of the economy where we see, to a first order, very little innovation happening. Um, So uh, I said we see a lot of innovation in new drugs and medical devices. We see very little innovation in like healthcare delivery, for instance. Um, we see very little innovation in housing, in education, in the government sector, um, all these sorts of things. So we get cases where there are reasonably small parts of the economy that are innovating very rapidly, and then big parts of the economy that grow, uh, that, that innovate very slowly if at all, on a year-to-year basis. Um, Of course, the important question is, we think we have this productivity slowdown today. First of all, why? And then is this going to continue? Um, You know, sort of projecting into the future, I I should say one of my favorite quotes is uh, by the great Yogi Berra, that predictions are hard, especially about the future. So anything I say about the future of technology today uh, is likely to look dramatically foolish in, you know, 20, 30 years. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm an optimist uh, about the future of, of economic growth and the future of the improvement of our quality of life. Uh, I suspect that optimism may be at least partly genetic. Um, but, you know, I, I, you think about the possibilities of, you know, uh, in improve, continued improvements in IT, personalized medicine or, you know, generalized vaccines that can protect against entire classes of viruses or fusion energy or commercial space travel, you know, all all these sorts of things are uh, things that we suspect may be feasible in the intermediate future that we think would, you know, radically alter our our way of life, maybe comparable to, you know, the invention of indoor plumbing or the automobile and the airplane that we saw in the middle of the 20th century. So it's, it's impossible for me to think about these things and not be, you know, kind of romantically optimistic about the future. Uh, There are other very smart people out there who, you know, look at the uh, economy today, think we've sort of picked the low hanging fruit that the new innovations are never going to measure up to indoor plumbing and the automobile and the airplane, and that the economy faces so many headwinds in terms of, you know, things like demographics and uh, um, public and private debt loads and, and things like that, that we're just never going to be able to be as successful at innovating as, as we were in the past. And it's, it's really hard, again, to make predictions that are based on anything other than uh, maybe one's uh, predisp- predisposition towards optimism or pessimism, uh, I think, to make convincing predictions about the future. I, 
again, I'm personally optimistic. Well, I really hope you are right. Thank you very much. <laughs> Me too. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, Fernando. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Identifying the causes and consequences of innovation has been a top concern of social scientists for a while, yet a clear understanding of it still eludes us. The mere concept of how we define it and measure it is problematic. We do know, however, that innovation is not an individual affair. As Newton famously said, we stand under the shoulder of giants. Therefore, understanding the social settings that favor the transmission of fruitful ideas through time but also through space, is of the utmost importance. This has been Pence Exchange markets and cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.